The following audio drama is rated PG for pretty good. You should experience lots of explosions with no body parts and a couple of swears. Parents should be ready to cover their ears. This is Broken Sea Audio presents Doctor Who Behind the Sofa. Hi, this is Stevie K. Farnaby, producer and director of Broken Sea's Doctor Who, and incredibly. I'm on board the Broken Sea TARDIS with none other than J. Ellington Lee. Hi. Hi, mate. <laughs> so who is J. Ellington Lee? Well, J. Ellington Lee actually um, worked for the BBC's Radiophonic Workshop, uh, amongst many other things. Um, he was a session player for Bob Dylan, worked on movie soundtracks, you name it. The guy's done it basically. <laughs> if you see Jay's, um, if you see any of the old uh, BBC uh, sound effects records, for example, you'll see Jay credited on some of those as J E L. Is there anything else you'd like to add to that? Well, the only thing I could think of was I designed a new applause machine and uh, a new sound effects machine because mm-hmm. I came to realize that. When I would listen to shows that had canned uh, applause and laughter and so forth, that they were all made by people who were probably dead now. Right. And, uh, <laughs> there was just something very odd about you know, listening to a program mm-hmm. and hearing people laughing hysterically and realizing that all those hysterical laughs, laughs are, have been dead and buried for 30, 40 years. So you designed that... Um... Oh, of course, and you, you worked on sort of designing um, musical instruments as well, some of the early um, analog synthesizers too, of course. Um, I, forgot, I left that bit out of your introduction. How dare I? <laughs> you know? Well, yes, I, I started out actually as a, a songwriter, uh, a piano player, mm-hmm. and uh, I had the fortune or misfortune, I, I'm, I go back and forth on this, on... Uh, moving to London mm-hmm. and uh, I got to London and uh, I met a few people and I was introduced to uh, a machine called the Putney or the VCS3 mm-hmm. and it changed my life radically suddenly uh, a few years later I found myself as a result of the exposure I had at the Beeb as well as uh, a studio a private studio called Kaleidophone mm-hmm. uh, a whole new way of making music and I came back to the United States for that uh, it was it was kind of odd because no one really knew what a synthesizer was in the United States at that time wow. which uh, I think Keith Emerson had done one project and uh, Walter Carlos who's now known as Wendy Carlos uh, had just started working on switched on Bach so this, this goes back quite a ways right and uh, I started designing little circuits here and there and ended up working for a company called EMU, which uh, people think is E-MU, standing for the first syllables of music. Right. But actually, it was named after uh, the micro symbol originally. Right. I mean, I always pronounce the EMU. <laughs> Clearly, yeah. I was or it could be the bird it. as well. <laughs> Clearly, I was mispronouncing it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and, uh, yeah. We we were never quite sure, but the EMU system was uh, a collaboration between myself, a fellow named Dave Rossum, and mm-hmm. another uh, Scott Wedge, Ed Rudnick, and uh, we just built a synthesizer. <laughs> what can I say? <laughs> uh, then I worked with a fellow named Harold Boda on a device called, well, the frequency shifter was the first. Mm-hmm. 
And then we moved over to uh, what was called the Barber Pole Phaser. Okay. And it was uh, an infinite phase. And uh, it gets kind of technical in, in terms of what it was, but mm-hmm. basically you heard the sound go on forever. I mean, that's quite an impressive feat, to say the least. Yeah. Um, I mean, well, I believe you, you've heard some of, uh, uh, you have personally heard some of uh, the Barber Pole effects. I have indeed, yeah, and they were incredible. I, I, I guess when I first heard what they could do, it was kind of the sustain on the note, for example, was just yeah. utterly amazing. I mean, it sounded like the pitch was just literally increasing, like ad infinitum. Basically, it was just going on and on and on and on and on forever. And my first, um, my first reaction to that was, "Wow, you know, <laughs> this stuff that Jay did is is quite unlike anything else that that I've actually heard before." <laughs> you know. Well, it, we're about to take that one step further, actually, mm-hmm. uh, because I've designed a chip that will. Well, I personally didn't do the the circuitry. Uh, Dave Rossum did, mm-hmm. but it it will be a barber pole sound on a chip. And uh, what I would like to do with it personally mm-hmm. is get an image of a barber pole moving right. and uh, synchronize my barber pole sound mm-hmm. to the vi- visible barber pole. So as you see the the old fashioned barber pole moving up in to infinity, mm-hmm. uh, you hear the sound doing the same thing. Wow. I mean, <laughs> I mean that, that's a real head scrambler. <laughs> I mean, I'm just yeah. sitting here now thinking about the algorithms um, to actually <laughs> make that work. You know? <laughs> it's, it's already blowing my mind. <laughs> that's like a couple of seconds after you've mentioned it, my mind's already yeah. blown. <laughs> well, I, I, you know, I, I live in the desert. Mm-hmm. Uh, Oh, about 20 miles uh, outside of Tucson, right. and there's not a whole lot to do. <laughs> uh, so you come up with ideas of what would be interesting. So one time I built a Jacob's Ladder just for the fun of it, and it keeps all the rednecks out. You know, they, they won't bother with me. Uh, but uh, yeah, you mentioned um, you mentioned earlier that you, you you've actually got a um, Van der Graaff generator. <laughs> Yeah, as yeah. well outside. <laughs> uh, and then you know, I started thinking, well, maybe I should do something serious. So uh, I got involved in the whole concept of 3D and uh, barber poles and uh, syncing together audio with video, but in a whole different way. And I'm still not sure what's going to come out in the end. I know I can do. Uh, the 3D quite easily. Mm-hmm. Uh, the barber pole and the always rising pitch, uh, I'm not too sure of yet. Yeah, I but mean, it's some incredible One stuff. more lonely night on the prairie or on the desert, and uh, I'll probably come up with a way to do it. I reckon you will. <laughs> yeah, I, I hope so. And of course, I you, hope mentioned, so. you mentioned the VCS3 as well, which was, um, I, I suppose, Delia Derbyshire's favorite synthesizer. As well, yeah, well, Putney, well, you know, I mean, what was that actually like to work with? It was fabulous. Uh, at first, I looked at it and I looked at Delia and uh, mm-hmm. Brian and uh, a few others, and it was just like, yeah, so. <laughs> and uh, then they started showing me things you could do with it. And I thought to myself, I could become a whole orchestra with this. Wow. I don't just have to play piano on a bad tape recorder and send it in and hope that I'll, you know, someone will record one of my songs. And uh, it was, I had my change in life at 22. Mm -hmm. (laughs) (laughs) And the VCS3 was responsible. (laughs) And the VCS3 and David Cockrell and Peter Sinovioff, although I... uh, never really paid much attention to the music he made. Uh, mm-hmm. I believe he financed a lot of that uh, work. Right. I'm not positive, though. I mean, I mean, it was an incredible synthesizer. I yeah. mean, I've got a VST version um, installed in my production software, you know, like yeah. software-based version um, of, of the VCS3. 
Uh, it's just an amazing thing just to tinker with, you know, just to play with, just to have, you know, just to create these like mad sounds. And in fact, I've actually used it on um, Broken Seas, Doctor Who, a couple yeah. of times um, to create the odd sort of little, um, you know, little piece of music to sit underneath scenes. Um, oh, it's wonderful! It's an amazing. I'm looking. I'm, I'm so looking forward. Actually, uh, I'll be mm -hmm. uh, in London and in uh, the United Kingdom in December. And uh, I'm really looking forward to going back to the Beeb mm -hmm. and seeing why they don't have a radiophonics workshop any longer. Yeah, I mean, it closed its uh, doors back in '94. It, it's sad, and it, oh, it's sad, it. of course, that uh, at my age, uh, it's not unexpected when people pass away. Mm -hmm. But I've dealt with most of the people here in the United States already. They're already they're already yeah. gone. <laughs> now I'm going back to England. <laughs> oh, man. <clears throat> and, and unfortunately, uh, I was very fond of Delia and a few others. And uh, I imagine, yeah. what can I say? It's going to be uh, quite an experience. Uh, stiff upper lip, I guess I would have to say. You know, I'm sure I'm going to at some point uh, have a tear or two. Well, I can imagine, yeah. I mean, it, it's... Yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I mean, you know, for somebody to have um, played such a big part in your life as well, you know, and then to find out uh, sort of only recently as well that she's sort of sadly left us, you know, um, it must be heartbreaking for you. It is. She changed my bloody life. Now, I don't know if it's for better or for worse hmm. to this day, but mm -hmm. it's completely changed. Uh, mm -hmm. I... I, I see things in a different way. I hear things in a different way. When someone says, no, you can't do that, my immediate thought is, of course you can. <laughs> <laughs> and I wouldn't have had that attitude if it hadn't have been for Delia. I actually, um, oddly enough, I've got an anecdote to share there myself, actually. When I was, um, when I was um, producing Escape from New York, um, I had... Um, a number of the scripts had these really fast changes of um, perspective within a scene, so it would switch to the different, um, I suppose, the different characters' perspectives who might even be in different locations, but all within the same scene. And I was told quite categorically by some quite big name producers that that actually wouldn't be possible to pull off, you know, without um, confusing the listener. Yeah, <laughs> and I took that as a challenge. <laughs> that was my. Yeah. That was like showing me, a, you know, it was like showing a red flag to a bull. You know, that was it. You, you, oh, you're not going to tell yeah. me I can't do it. You know, I'm going straight ahead. I'm going to do this. You know. Um, I think one of the funniest times. Uh, I hate to interrupt, but one of the funniest times I, I had was when I had come back to the United States. Right. And I was really broke I had very little money mm -hmm. and there was an opportunity to do a, a very large multimedia uh, production okay and uh, I really wanted the job right and so I had a partner and we're sitting there and we're you know trying to say all the right things to get the job mm -hmm. and in the end I, I looked up at the producer and I said and of course we'll do the the soundtrack and triphonic sound and he just looked at me and beamed and he said, that's fantastic. Why and then not? we walked outside and my partner looked at me and he said, triphonic sound, what, what is that? What are you talking about? And I said, <laughs> I don't have the vaguest idea, but we've got to come up with it. <laughs> <laughs> so, so basically you pitched this <laughs> without actually knowing how you were going to achieve it. <laughs> I didn't have a, a clue. I didn't have any idea whatsoever. And, and of course, it actually did become a reality as well. That was scary when that happened. Yeah. <laughs> um, I mean, uh, the the sort of radiophonic workshop, of course, was known for the the VCS three, uh, sure. the Putneys, and um, certainly the way that there were um, the, the the VCS threes were used in such a way that they were used actually probably beyond the, the original design specifications. Which is well, there were things you could do to the VCS-3 mm -hmm. that uh, people never, I guess, thought about. Mm -hmm. In my opinion, it might have been the first synthesizer, actually, but there's no way to know, and it doesn't really matter, I suppose. Mm -hmm. But if you 
have one of those little pins that you used to use to make your patches on a pin matrix and you puncture a hole through the plastic uh, handle of the pin right? and then pull that off and then run a wire through <laughs> and solder that wire to the tip and then put the plastic back and then do the same on the other side. Earth is common, so you can patch in between two VCS3s. Which was completely unheard of. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I mean, that was just... <laughs> to actually... Now, I'm an, I'm an American, and in America, girls just don't do this. You know, girls are sugar and spice and everything nice. Well, I mean, to be honest with you... Um... Delia did this. Oh, she... <laughs> and I'm looking at her, and she's saying, "Oh, this, it's it's no big deal, you know." <laughs> I mean, even um, I mean, back in the '60s, um, you know, and early '70s, women didn't manage anything at all, you know, and that, and so for 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 a lady to be in charge of of anything was unusual, let alone something that was audio based. I mean, even now, um, the, the, it, it's only sort of the last sort of four years or so that um, certainly that I've noticed anyway, um, that, that sort of women are getting into sort of production work now. And I'm kind of really pleased that that's happening, of course, you know, but uh, yeah, I mean, back in the 60s and early 70s, that was completely unheard of. You know? Totally unheard of. It, it Yeah. I cracked when I saw her do that. I mean, my my brain just shattered. <laughs> uh, I can totally imagine. Was... Then, of course, you know, I was getting used to working with 240 volts and oh, yeah. very large plugs and this and that. And <laughs> here, here is this woman, you know, t- teaching me how to turn a switch on, <laughs> or this or that. <laughs> Wow. It was quite an experience. I'll never forget it. Uh, there were some very, very good people, and I'm sure there still are. Yeah, yeah, I'm sure. I mean, um, certainly uh, Brian Hodgson crops up an awful lot on um, Doctor Who DVD extras, you know, little interviews and stuff, um, you know, for the various uh, stories from the classic series, which is cool to see him still around, you know, still doing these things. Oh, I was so glad to hear that that he was still going on. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Brian was a very articulate man, mm-hmm. and uh, he actually created, without my realizing it, he and a friend of mine, a co-writer, actually, mm-hmm. a fellow named Bert Alicantra, uh, got fed up with the United States, went to England, didn't tell me a thing. <laughs> right. And he ended up at uh, the Beeb, and he met Brian at the workshop. Mm-hmm. And Brian said, I'll, I'll produce you for Polygram on uh, Kaleidophone or something or other. I don't know. Anyway, uh, Bert comes back to the United States about a year later, mm-hmm. and he has this album. And I turn the album over, and it says, Recorded at Kaleidophone Studios by Brian Hodgson. And I went, oh, no. You know, I mean, <laughs> the odds of this happening are, are one in a trillion. <laughs> I mean, wow again, you know, it's like, um, it's, it's like every time I speak to you, Jay, you know, you come up with these stories and these anecdotes, you know, that just, just completely blow me away. And sometimes I just, I don't really have a, a, a like a response for them, you know, because it's just kind of, it's like, you, you, you've had some amazing experiences. Oh, um, I, I've been, I've been very fortunate and, uh, you know, I've, I've had, one or two difficult times. Uh, I can you know, going back really. to London in December, and uh, also uh, coming up your way. Of course. Uh, I recall one time missing a connection. Yeah, I, I lived in Swiss Cottage, and uh, I was taking a. Uh, I went to visit a friend. Uh, I don't recall where it was. He was on the heath somewhere. Mm-hmm. And I took the last train from his house mm-hmm. uh, to Swiss Cottage. And at Swiss Cottage, I was going to go down to Camden Town via bus. Right. And I missed the last bus. Ouch. So now I had to walk from Swiss Cottage to Camden High Street. And it was bloody cold. <laughs> 
<laughs> yeah, the UK can get rather cold. <laughs> it was it was the coldest walk of my life. So what is Swiss Cottage? <laughs> Just for our um, listeners' benefit, who may not be aware of what Swiss Cottage was. Uh, Swiss Cottage was a, is a neighborhood in, in London. Okay. Uh, SW, I forget. Yeah. But uh, it was a neighborhood, and there was a little Swiss restaurant there, and uh, then there were a lot of little rows of houses all around. It was a very nice place. Anyhow, um, the other thing, I suppose, that the, the Radiophonic Workshop was kind of known for was the the ring modulators and um, it's been an ambition of mine for, for literally years and years and years and years um, I've, I've always wanted to own a radiophonic workshop an original radiophonic workshop ring modulator which, <laughs> um, but I was kind of curious as to as to what they were like to work with um, well they were they were terrific and they were easy to work with mm-hmm. uh, after I had taken the deep plunge and said goodbye piano for a while uh-huh. I'm going to be doing electronic music uh, it's interesting though the ring modulator in particular because mm-hmm. for the longest time I would read in books you know circuitry and, and so forth that the ring modulator is you have two inputs and one output mm-hmm. and the two inputs are summed at the output to be the sum and the difference Right. So, the, in theory, they should all sound the same, but they don't. Yeah, I've noticed that. I mean, I've got, um, I must have, oh, close to about 15 different software-based yeah. ring modulators. Because, um, yeah. obviously, I mean, for our listeners' benefit, of course, the ring modulator is what gives the Daleks their sound. It's what gives the uh, Cybermen their voice. You know, it, it was like a huge part of the of Doctor Who, I guess, you know. Sure. And, um, you know, I mean, and I mean, certainly using the sort of 15 different ring modulators I've got, every single one of them produces a slightly different result. They don't I know. all sound the same. You're absolutely they don't. right. Even the software-based versions don't sound the same. Um, I mean, what did they actually... Well, I mean, the, the original Radiophonics um, ring mods, though, I mean, what did they actually look like? Were they sort of in sort of wooden boxes? And I believe there was one in a wooden box... When I was there, um, frankly, everyone was working with Putney's and uh, also with the Synth 100, which occasionally would change its name to the Digi 100. I never quite understood that, but <laughs> it, was the, it was the same instrument. Right. Or, uh, as I prefer to think of it, uh, a synthesizer is really uh, a musical erector set of sorts. Mm-hmm. And... Uh, the erector set never changed, just the name. Well, of course, yeah. It went from the Digi 100 to the Synthi 100, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. It so, so made good else? music. I, I mean, one of the things, yeah, I, I mean, absolutely. I, I mean, one of the things that, that, that kind of surprised me um, was, you know, when I've seen photographs of um, the Radiophonic Workshop, or even video footage, or... or you know, sort of interviews with the likes of Delia, David, and Brian, and people like that. Um, yeah. The thing that really struck me was was how little equipment was actually in there. <laughs> you you, got you didn't of, need much. You got this fantastic sort of massive sort of output that came out of that little place. Oh, absolutely. And, tiny, and we, you know, we we used stuff that wasn't necessarily electronic. Other than a microphone, perhaps, mm-hmm. uh, we'd find broken toys that would make a weird sound, or whatever it might be. Uh, one time we needed a crackling fire, and I pulled off the wrapper from my cigarettes, and you shouldn't smoke. Uh, but back then, it was considered healthy to smoke. So, you know, I, I pulled off the wrapper from the cigarettes, and I started crumbling it, and I had a crackling fire. Nice one. I mean, yeah. um, so I was kind of wondering, you know, what, what sort of equipment was actually there because there didn't seem to be an awful lot, you know. I mean, obviously there was there was various tape spool machines as well. Yeah. Um, you know, um, you know, sort of very famously, Delia sort of um, put together the original Doctor Who theme by splicing pieces of tape together. <laughs> That's correct. I mean, wow. <laughs> 
That's why I think it's one of the most impressive pieces of um, electronic music ever conceived by anybody, <laughs> quite frankly. Simply it's true. Simply because of, um, you know, I mean, she sat there with little tone generators, didn't she? And sort of record. Like, oh, absolutely. Pretty put, much. Put it back together again and, and formed a melody by splicing pieces of tape together. I mean, the we did something quite unique, which was called imagination. And, <laughs> Uh, we actually found ways to do things mm -hmm. the easiest way. Well, uh, isn't it? I mean, sometimes it was just tin cans that were uh, hung on strings and, and banged. And, you know, it wasn't all electronic is what I'm getting at. Yeah. Well, I mean, the, the sort of low-tech approach works. It you does. Know, you know, it I absolutely mean, does. And... Yeah. Uh, I guess I would be considered a high-tech person at this point, but uh, the truth of the matter is I use a lot of whatever's available, whatever will make the sound. Well, that's, that, that's exactly it. Yeah. I, mean, I mean, I have a, a very similar approach myself. I mean, um, um, one, one of Broken Sea's other producers, um, Bill Holwig, um, actually asked me a little while back um, to create him some sword-fighting-type sound effects and so what I did was <laughs> I went downstairs and I got these handfuls of like large knives out of the kitchen drawer <laughs> I walked past the <laughs> I walked past the front room you know with this with like armfuls of huge knives <laughs> yeah. and my wife just looks at me and then just goes straight back to the TV again she didn't bat an eyelid or anything yeah. and if that had been any other sort of um, house in England yeah. <laughs> there'd have been people <laughs> rushing for well, the door my, <laughs> I can appreciate that my, my wife does the same thing uh, I'll walk into the house and I'll say look what I found and she said get that dirty baby buggy out of the house and I said well you don't understand it can it can be a dolly for a, for a camera <laughs> it's got these big shock absorbers and the big wheels and she, she said it's it's full of where did you get that i said i found it in the desert somewhere it was abandoned she said yes i can smell that and i can see why it was abandoned <laughs> so Fantastic. but now she doesn't even flinch I mean, she doesn't even flinch. She just goes back to watching television. <laughs> well, that's it. They kind of give you that look, don't they? As if to say, oh, it's just, you know. Yeah, Stevie it's beyond getting, rolling the eyes. Yeah, Steve, Stevie's getting wacky with audio again, you know. So what, you yeah. know. <laughs> um, yeah. And um, I, I, there was another occasion as well when I was, um, I was actually producing um, a friend's song. Um, and I actually produced it in his studio. And um, it was kind of like an acoustic-based song. And I thought that actually what this song actually needs is um, a bass drum. Um, but of course, I wasn't in my studio, so I didn't have my drum kit with me. And so I thought, hey, you know, I mean, we're, we're going to have to find some way of creating a bass drum sound. And so I came up with the notion of actually micing up the wall of his studio. <laughs> I just point, <laughs> put a mic on a stand, pointed it towards the wall, and I tapped out the bass drum pattern while he recorded it. And then I just added loads of bass EQ on it, and, and like literally everybody who's heard it um, has this <laughs> has come back and said, "You're kidding! That's not a real bass drum." <laughs> and I said, "Yeah, that's the wall <laughs> of my friend's house." <laughs> that's terrific. But, that's but I, terrific. Yeah, we did similar things uh, like that. I still do. Uh, I was down in a little town called Bisbee, Arizona. Right which uh, is sort of an enigma. It's hard to really explain, Bisbee. Right. Uh, I suppose for those of you out that, that are really curious, uh, you could Google Bisbee and you'll get the idea. Uh, but I was at a place called the Old Timers, and it was just a very good keyboard player mm -hmm. and uh, a drummer. And the drummer owned the old timers, and he was a, a former biker right. from New Orleans. And he actually played his drum kit, but he would also play one of the pillars uh, that held up the roof in the. Oh, nice one! Yeah, uh, 
why not? It worked. I mean, one of the other things I did as well with that that particular track again was was kind of a kind of a funny sort of you know daft little bit that I did with that particular song was um, I, I, I wanted some I wanted some kind of sort of um, chinging sounds you know sort of almost like a hi hat pattern. Yeah. Um, on the track but again obviously I didn't have my drum kit with me so what I did was I had a pocket full of keys at the time <laughs> with, with my house keys on it and so I tapped out yeah. the, the, um, the hi-hat patterns on my leg <laughs> she just tapped in my pocket <laughs> you know <laughs> which is was kind of funny you know to do but um, it, ridiculous to watch though <laughs> but it, it worked you know and the low tech approach works so well from time to time you know from time to time, it does. I, I just a few days ago, I got a coconut mm-hmm. uh, at the supermarket, and uh, I come home, and my wife gives me kind of a look because she sees I have a coconut. She says, "What are you doing with that?" I'm, and I said, "Well, I thought you'd enjoy having fresh coconut." Right. And she said, "That's not the whole story." And I said, "No, it isn't." <laughs> and uh, she knows you only too well. <laughs> yeah. So we we. Cut the coconut open very carefully with a, a saw, uh-huh. and uh, poured out the milk and uh, <laughs> cut out all the pieces of the coconut. And I said, "Here, you can enjoy the coconut now." And she said, "Well, what are you doing?" And I said, "I'm making horse claps, <laughs> horse hoof, the sound of horse hooves." And uh, it's on one of my recordings, actually. Fantastic. I mean, that, that that's good old-fashioned sort of um, what they used to call foley, wasn't it, in the old-time radio shows? Yeah. So I mean, yeah. that stuff works as well, you know. I mean, that's the thing I love about radio and audio productions is that you can go to pretty much any world, anywhere in the universe, or alternative universes for that matter, you know. Absolutely. And, and you can recreate and make these things happen in the most amazing yeah. ways. Um, and, you know, if you were going to do that in a, as a movie, for example, I mean, it would cost, yeah. you know, $100 million to make. <laughs> But I can make it at home in my studio for nothing. <laughs> a few sound effects here, you know. And I'm, I'm aware. I mean, at one point, I blew the head off the Statue of Liberty in one of my audio shows. <laughs> All these zombies came running out of it, you know. <laughs> so, fantastic, you know. I mean, imagine trying to do that in a movie. Uh, how much oh, yeah. that would cost, you know, to do. Uh, I, I look at the cost of movies today, and it's frightening if you actually go to the cinema. Anyway, and there's um, much more entertainment on YouTube, frankly. Hey, there's some great entertainment on YouTube. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, so how did you actually become involved with the Radiophonic Workshop then? Was that a... Well, <clears throat> because I can arrange and mm-hmm. uh, compose music... Uh, and had some commercial success in the United States as a songwriter. Mm-hmm. Uh, I was just sort of welcomed in, and I got a work permit, uh, and that was pretty much it. I uh, I fell right into it. I was just at the right place at the right time with the right people, and uh, home office sort of, you know, raised their eyebrow a bit. <laughs> that I was so unique that I could get this kind of status, but I got it. And uh, fantastic. after that, I was home free, other than that long, bloody walk that I just talked about a minute ago right. uh, in the cold. I, I never had a problem in England. Uh, I, I mean, I can just imagine just how, um, just how creative a place that must have been. You know, oh, it was such amazing people around you. You know as well. I mean, wow. And of course, you know yourself as well. You're obviously an amazing character too. You know, <laughs> in amongst all of that lot as well. I'm sure you added masses to to, to what they were doing there. You know, we did a lot of interesting things, and we had a lot of fun doing them. Uh, I mean, there, there there were just so many different. Uh, Oh, occasions that mm-hmm. weird problems would arise and the way we would correct the problem was not in the book <laughs> because was, there were no books yeah it was kind of, kind of a creative solution then yeah you had to figure out how to do it 
it's just I mean what was it like to work there then because I mean I, I was kind of um, I know from my own point of view you know I mean I worked also as a commercial producer and um, pretty much most of the people that I worked with um, yeah. it was kind of um, a lot of the people you don't remember because it, it, it was kind of a job yeah you know it's kind of like like you sort of um, you produce one band and then that, that you know, you finish with them, you go on to another band and another and another and another. And so pretty much by the time you finished, um, you've had, you've had literally hundreds of people gone through the studio. You know? Yeah. <laughs> and, um, no, it's, it's true. Uh, we, uh, <clears throat> I, I personally worked all the time mm-hmm. and, uh, actually I took quite a few holidays because when I was working, that's all I did. Uh, I don't even know how many shows I worked on. I have no idea. Wow. And and various other things. I mean, there was constant flow of work coming in. Yeah, I mean that was that was like the that was certainly my experience too. Was that um, because of the constant flow of work? I still can't remember. I mean, I can't remember a lot of the people that I actually worked with, simply because I worked with that many. You know, <laughs> it just yeah. sort of it just rolls through, doesn't it? I mean. I mean, I, I, I remember sort of um, asking you once on an email, you know, what shows you'd actually worked on, you know, and you said, okay, you know, Doctor Who, um, <laughs> you know. Um, yeah, and probably I don't, a lot I don't of really is, recall. Yeah. A, a sort of, they just, if, you, if you're working at a studio mm-hmm. and you're being given jobs, mm-hmm. they're the client and you just make it all happen and then you move on to the next job. Yeah, that's it. I mean, it's um, I, I definitely can relate to that. Anyhow, um, all I can say at this moment in time, Jay, is um, thanks very much for making a, a dream become a reality for me. Because Well, um, I would also like to thank you for making a dream come true in reality because I didn't really, I wasn't aware of just how powerful the internet had become. Right. And that we could carry on a conversation of, I don't know, what are we, 7,000 miles away from each other? It's, it'd probably be about that, yeah, maybe 6,000 miles, five, six thousand 6,000, something like that, yeah. yeah. Uh, that I could just be sitting back in my studio and uh, carrying on a conversation. And not only that, but we, we of course, we've, we've worked together now as well. Absolutely. I'm on different uh, continents, which is fantastic. I mean, what I was actually thanking you for was um, your contribution to the new Doctor Who theme, um, which is uh, just fabulous. You know, I mean, to get, um, for me, um, as, as I've already sort of mentioned, and as anybody who knows me knows, that um, the original Doctor <coughs> Who theme by Delia Derbyshire is you know, I'm a big fan of electronic music and that is without a doubt one of my all time favourites. It's it's always been top three in my favourite sort of uh, electronic <coughs> music tracks simply because of just how yeah. inventive, how original it was, etc. etc. And I had that ambition for sort of twenty years to actually collaborate on a version of the theme with somebody yeah. that was there that knew Delia. You know, and um, so thank you from the bottom of my heart for making that happen, Jay. It really meant the world well, to me. Well, you're most welcome, and <clears throat> I'm actually grateful for the opportunity to have uh, worked on Doctor Who with you. It was a big flash to the past, and <clears throat> it's a great show. It always has been a great show. And, so uh, I, I'm in debt to you. Uh, I figured, you know, once I got back to the States and after all these years, Mm -hmm. uh, I would never run across Doctor Who again. (laughs) And then I met your company and uh, one or two others, and Mm -hmm. suddenly I realized, well, this is still going on. Yeah, it's huge now. Um, So to be a part of it is really my heartfelt thanks to you. Oh, thank you very much for saying that. Um, I mean, truthfully, I mean, like I said, I had this ambition for sort of 20 years, you know. (laughs) (laughs) You know, I mean, obviously our listeners won't know this, but um, I I actually emailed you completely out of the blue 
um, and and sort of we, we'd kind of built up a friendship through various forums and such like. And I kind of um, I emailed you out of the blue and I said, "Do you ever fancy revisiting your time on Doctor Who? You know, because I'd love to collaborate on a version of the theme with you." And um, yeah. the email came back. The reply came back within about an hour, and he said, "Yeah, sure, why not?" You know, and I thought, "Whoa!" <laughs> I actually, um, I, I, you know, I mean, it's God's honest truth here, Jay. You know, I, I actually shook <laughs> basically when you said yes, and um, there was a part of me that didn't quite believe that it was going to happen until I actually. Um, you know, until I actually got your melody lines, <laughs> you know, actually in my well, email. <clears throat> and I thought, whoa. <clears throat> in my own demented way, uh, <laughs> when I realized that I was going to be working on a Doctor Who project mm -hmm. after all these years, I thought to myself, maybe Doctor Who has the solution for uh, changing around kind of a mixed up world because he can travel back and forth in time at will well he's hoping yeah or or at least you know maybe the the, the TV show the the, yeah. the broadcast show even maybe it'll inspire others to change the world for the better i'm hoping i'm you hoping uh, as i said it's a, it's it sounds demented but i i, I really took Not doctor who that seriously not at all. And I mean, um, you know, um, Star Trek was the same, wasn't it? Star Trek was much much the same. I, I would have to say that uh, I, I've seen, of course, all the Star Treks. I could even recite lines if I had to, uh, <laughs> which kind of scares people sometimes. But uh, <clears throat> of all the media mm -hmm. I have seen... In my lifetime, the one that stands out is not a TV show, but a movie, and uh, 2001, which was uh, written by uh, Clark, the book. Of course. And actually, uh, the, um, actually, the way it went was that um, Arthur C. Clarke wrote the film script. And right. Actually, what he did was, um, it, you know, from a technical point of view, what he did was he wrote a short story, um, which was pitched to the film studio. Ah, okay. And then they accepted that as a project because Stanley Kubrick was on board to direct. And then Arthur C. Clarke wrote the script for the film, and then the novel actually came out after the film. So that's fa that's very interesting. I didn't know the history. Yeah, well, it's um, I, I know exactly what you're saying in terms of 2001: A Space Odyssey. It's my all-time favorite film and book <laughs> as well. So. Well, I actually named. Uh, the controlling part of my synthesizer uh, after one of the characters in 2001, which was Hal. Oh, that, I mean, that's fantastic. Th this is and the... Um... We, we refer to, uh, is Hal okay today? Uh, <laughs> I mean... I'm not quite sure. You might want to check and see if the uh, memories are turned on or off. I don't recall if I... You know... <laughs> this is the MU modular, isn't it, that you yeah. designed? Yeah, this is a modular synthesizer system that we designed. And uh, <clears throat> Hal was, in the end, we called the controlling side of that synthesizer, which was a hybrid half-digital, half-audio. Uh, analog, I'm sorry. Uh, I, I came up with the name Hal. Fantastic. And... Uh, <laughs> Hal is just such a such a great character in the film as well, because he's not, even though he kills the whole crew... Um, he's not actually evil. Um, not really, no. He just had a mission. That's right. And um, yeah. he, he was given um, conflicting orders. That's correct. That he couldn't uh, interpret. Um, so, yeah. yeah, fantastic sort of uh, film. I absolutely adore that film. I must have watched it literally hundreds of times. It, it, it's the most incredible film. In fact, I actually just watched it about three days ago. <laughs> so, wow. Um, so it's funny you should mention that, you know, phenomenal film, um, just utterly brilliant, you know, in it, it, its whole concept. And um, it's on a scale as well. The scale of the whole thing is just massive. Oh, yes. Well, you know, in terms of the, the actual concepts are really weighty. You know, it's not your sort of um, sort of throw, throw away sort of Hollywood blockbuster <laughs> by any stretch. No, of no it definitely was not. 
uh, <clears throat> although uh, there were a few people who worked on it mm-hmm. that no they wouldn't identify with Hollywood I was thinking of Doug Trumbull in particular I believe he worked on 2001 he did all of the uh, the main special effects on 2001 yeah yeah. Uh, but he isolated himself in the States. Mm-hmm. Uh, he lived in California, mm-hmm. but uh, way outside of the L.A. Hollywood area. In fact, he lived in a desert area. <laughs> <laughs> Much like yourself. <laughs> Much like myself, yeah. Um, so am, am I correct in, in, in sort of making the leap of assumption here that you actually knew, Doug? Yes, I did. Wow. Uh and uh, we had a, a a good business relationship. Uh, mm-hmm. He was very hell bent on doing a film at that time uh, called Silent Running. Oh wow! And uh, I auditioned, and I thought I was going to get the the job for the music. Right. And I didn't. Uh, and I was a little annoyed at him for that. <laughs> and uh, I mean we didn't you know exchange any negative words or anything like that but mm-hmm. I was I'd worked on it for three or four days when I brought him the sounds and he just shook his head and he said no no I can't put my finger on it <laughs> and uh, and finally we both came to realize that what Doug Trumbull wanted at that point in time was no sound at all because if a spaceship were to be starting up Mm -hmm. after who knows how many hundreds of years Mm -hmm. holding all the plant life on earth in space space is a vacuum there is no sound exactly yeah yeah very true it's not like early buck rogers or flash gordon series where they had the fake sounds or or Battlestar galactica or any of yeah or any of those yeah yeah yeah, so he put John Byers's voice on it. Yeah, he, he sort of went for a more poppy, sort of folkier sort of soundtrack yeah, for it. I don't he? think he knew what he wanted. He just, someone said, why don't you just put the, the Night They Drove Old Dixie Down or whatever mm-hmm. song it was he did. Uh, I don't think there was a lot of thought on his part. Right. Uh, I really think that he just said, well, we've got to fill some space, and I don't want it to be anything that would be construed as being part of the spacecraft. Right. I mean, I actually, um, I'm, I'm quite a big fan of that film, actually, Silent Running. <laughs> oh, really? Fact, yeah. In fact, I've actually, um, I've actually got Bruce Stern's uh, autobiography in my house. Ah, at, okay. At the moment, and it's been signed. Did he work on Andromeda Strain as well? Uh, to be honest, I can't remember. Yeah, uh, I don't, I don't remember that either. I, I know he definitely was uh, the main character on Silent Running, though. Um, yes. Oh, yeah. Phenomenal performance, and. Yeah. There were some great moments in that. Some of them really touching and moving moments as well in that film, yeah. too. You know, it was uh, it was quite a quite a hefty performance by Bruce Stern, and the special effects again, you know, were some of Doug Trumbull's best. You know. Oh, absolutely. Um, and and to be. But honest, you know, some of the special effects today mm-hmm. are really amazing. Like I just got through with a marathon of watching Harry Potter, which I had never seen. Right. And. Uh, my wife decided that it was time for me to see Harry Potter. So she got the whole lot of them. <laughs> Made you sit and watch uh, all six films in one night. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it was, it was insane. Uh, and I sat there and I watched all the Harry Potters. And you know something? Watching him walk through a pillar in the tube uh, to get to the right train platform. Oh, the platform <laughs> nine and a half. Nine and a half, yeah. Yeah. It didn't even phase me. It was incredibly well done, and some of the other special effects were incredibly well done. Yeah, I mean, um, the the size of the characters is what really surprises me as well. You know, especially Hagrid, you know, is about ten feet tall, <laughs> and in reality, he's not, you know, obviously. No, of course, obviously, yeah. <laughs> um, but it comes across as totally believable. Um, and, and one of my other favourite special effects sequences from the Harry Potter films would be the um, the Death Stalkers flying through London, which I thought was really well done, you know, incredibly well done. 
Um, but um, in, in terms of special effects, in my opinion, um, probably the greatest special effect that I've ever seen in a film was the very end sequence of 2001, where the baby, the, the um, you know, yeah, Dave, Dave Bowman's yeah. reborn as a star child, and the little baby's head turns and faces out and looks out at you. And wherever you stood in the room, that baby's head is looking at you. <laughs> you know, it's... Well, I'm pretty sure of this. Mm-hmm. If you look at that baby carefully enough and look at the fingers mm-hmm. on the baby, you will see six fingers. Wow. I'm not, I'm not positive. I'm going to have to recheck that because, to be honest yeah. with you, I've seen the film hundreds of times and I've never noticed. But you're probably right. They're <laughs> closed in a fist. So, you yeah. know, kind of tucked into a fetal position. So it's hard to see. Mm-hmm. But I'm pretty sure. Not positive. <laughs> uh, yeah, I'm, I'm really going to have to go check that now because yeah, I mean that was that was impressive, and I mean I think that's probably the best special effect I think I've ever seen. And, that was uh, a great special effect. I mean that was done in um, well, I think 2001 came out in 67, and Man set foot on the moon in 68. I think it was, wasn't it? That's uh, correct. If I'm not mistaken, yeah. and, uh, Neil Armstrong actually, um, you know, he's one small step sort of speech that he gave he actually made that up apparently on the steps on the way down to, to set the foot on the moon because right up until that point he was going to pull a practical joke on everybody and tell everybody that, that, that he'd actually found a large black monolith yeah. <laughs> on the moon <laughs> and, uh, wouldn't that be something when you hear all these weird great. sounds coming and then all of a sudden yeah. you see a bone thrown into the air and, and a large black monolith appear. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, but you yeah, never know. Uh, but I, I, uh, I think we'll kind of um, close this off now. Um, yeah, we have to get to work here, and yeah, likewise. Uh, <laughs> so I, know, I know you've got company as well, you know. So um, thanks. It's, for, it's been a pleasure, Stevie. It's been a and, total honor for me. Uh, right? a, a great honor <laughs> to have once again worked on anything related to Doctor Who because. It just brought back so many wonderful memories. And it's just, and of course, you made a dream come true for me too. So it's just a fantastic experience, Joe. And uh, long may we continue to work together, quite frankly. <laughs> and, um, you know, welcome back aboard the TARDIS, Joe. Well, thank you very much. And uh, I'll look forward to uh, talking with you again. And of course, uh, we'll touch base in December. And uh, looking forward to being back on British soil for a while. 